Life Audio. Welcome to Episode 3 of Truth Tribe with Doug Grotheis, where we seek truth through reason and evidence about the things that matter most, and perhaps have some fun along the way. We are recording in the Philosophy Bunker somewhere in Colorado. The first two episodes that we talked about, a little bit about my background, my history, how I became a philosopher, what I care about, essentially to speak and write the truth in love about what matters most, to bring the gospel to the world, to build up the church and the realities of the Christian message. And then on the second episode, we talked about the idea of a worldview, talked about that very quickly, really. But I use some essential propositions of the Christian worldview, which I derive from the modern classic book, The Universe Next Door, a basic worldview catalog by the late James Sire. Today, we'll be talking about Christian apologetics in a nutshell. Now, what I'm trying to do in these first five podcasts is lay a foundation for everything that will come. So after this 25, 30 minute talk about Christian apologetics in a nutshell, we will do one on Christian ethics and then one on a Christian philosophy of critiquing society. And we'll have five podcasts in the treasury, and then we'll start to build from there, talking about specific issues such as critical race theory, gender ideology, and a number of other things. Your family, your faith, they're not in the way. They are the way. From the creators of Jesus Revolution comes the incredible true story. It's going to be dangerous and scary and giving up. It's not an option. The story of one family's journey from down under to center stage. Unsung Hero, a for King and Country film starring Candace Cameron Bure and Terry O'Quinn. In theaters now. Visit unsunghero.movie to learn more. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. What I want to do right now is difficult in one way and another way fairly easy because I have been studying and teaching on Christian apologetics for 45 years. I've been teaching it professionally at Denver Seminary since 1993. I have done apologetics at secular college campuses. I've spoken about the issue on radio, more recently podcasts, written articles, reviews, so many things. And written a big apologetics textbook called Christian Apologetics, lively title there, A Comprehensive Case for a Biblical Worldview. Just a little background with that. I proposed that book to InterVarsity Press, I think about 2003, and the book was going to be called What Matters Most, and it was not going to be an apologetics textbook. It was going to be an apologetic for Christianity, but not really a textbook that was very thorough and systematic, but the book was supposed to take about three years, and then it was three years, four years, five years, six years, seven years, 
And eventually it got so big that it became a textbook and they gave it this very prosaic, mundane title, Christian Apologetics. To my delight and my thanksgiving to God, the book has done well enough to come out in a second edition in April of 2022. It has eight new chapters. All the chapters are updated, some much more than others. So this is a subject I know quite a bit about, but what I'm going to talk about for the next few minutes is a condensed apologetic. And I will link in the show notes to an article I have online called Christian Apologetics in a Nutshell, which will give you more information. And then if you want, of course, the full argument, you can always go to my textbook, Christian Apologetics. Let me start with a story. Everyone knows of Steve Jobs, the inventor of the iPhone and of Apple computing. When Steve Jobs was only 14 years old, he went to his pastor and was very troubled. And he showed his pastor a photo of a starving Biafran child. And he said, Pastor, did God know this would happen before it happened? And the pastor said, yes, Steve, he did. And Steve said something like, well, why did God allow it to happen? And the pastor simply said, there are things we have to accept and we cannot understand about God. And that was it. Steve Jobs left and never came back to the church. In fact, became some kind of a Buddhist. Now, there are a lot of stories like this, sadly. What the pastor could have done is said, well, Steve, this is an issue that Christian philosophers and theologians and biblical scholars have worked on for a very long time. So why don't we read about it? Would you like to read a book together like The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis? Or the pastor could have gone through a basic response to the problem of evil. But instead, he just said, we have to take it on faith, which meant blind faith, which meant giving no intellectual reason to be a Christian to this inquiring young man, Steve Jobs, who would turn the world upside down through his technological prowess and also have a great cultural and intellectual influence on the world. So we need an apologetic. We need to defend Christianity as objectively true, compellingly rational, and pertinent to the whole of life. That is my particular definition of apologetics. If we're asking people to name Christ as Lord and follow him as the crucified and resurrected Lord and Savior, then we need to make a case for this. If we're asking people to live the Christian life, then we have to know why it is a good idea to live the Christian life. We need to defend the Christian worldview as objectively true, not merely a subjective idea or a hope that gives us meaning, but meaning based on objective truth about the way the world is, about the nature of God, the human condition, the meaning of salvation. Is there hope for history? These are the worldview issues that Christianity articulates and which must be defended. And then we also need to show the existential significance and consequence of Christianity. So if Christianity is true, a certain kind of life is available through Christ that is not available anywhere else or in any other way. That is, if the gospel is true, if Christ can be trusted, then we can find eternal life through Christ, which means so many things, but it means that all of our sins are forgiven. It means the Holy Spirit takes residence within us. 
It means we have an assured destiny to be with God in all the redeemed, in a redeemed creation, the end of history, and forever. And it means that no matter how much we suffer, our suffering has some divine meaning. So, given the kinds of consequences that follow if Christianity is true, it makes sense to investigate it. And moreover, the flip side is that if Christianity is true and one does not come to Christ and believe it, then one loses all of those benefits. And even worse yet, one has to deal with God face to face for one's sins without the mediation of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And that is not a situation anyone would want to be in. So as we do apologetics, we need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, as Jesus said in Matthew ten sixteen. And I'll add another biblical animal, when appropriate, bold as a lion. And let me make a ridiculous personal comment here. I was told by my esteemed podcast advisor that I sometimes make mouth noises. <laughs> and I guess that means more than talking. I suppose it means things like clicking or smacking your lips or snorting or something. Not like the African tribes, you know, who make the <laughs> sounds. So I doubt I can cure myself of that. So you're just going to have to deal with it. So how do we make a positive case for Christianity? Well, we commend and defend the Christian worldview. And let me rehearse what I mean by that. A worldview is a set of assumptions about the basic makeup of the world, ultimate reality, morality, the human condition, and salvation. Every religion, every philosophy has to answer those basic worldview questions. One way of summarizing the Christian worldview in a narrative sense is in terms of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. A good God created the world as good, created human beings in his image and likeness. Those human beings fell into sin, but God has continued to be interested in the human condition, in people individually. So he left witness of himself in conscience and creation. He sent prophets to Israel. He is not without witness in the world. And that salvation was consummated through the incarnation, through the work of Jesus Christ. I have a summary here of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus. We receive the forgiveness of sins and a restored standing with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We receive this gift purely by faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We thus avoid hell, inherit heaven, and have a new way of living all of life on earth. And let me read to you Romans 10, 9 through 10, classic salvation verse. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So in apologetics, we want to bring people to the cross of Christ, to the living Christ, as soon as possible, meaning as soon as people understand their sin and their need of a Savior from that sin, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't want to bring them any sooner than that, because if we don't explain the meaning of sin against a holy God or the work of Christ as atoning for our sin and providing mediation and redemption, then people may not understand. They may think of Jesus as just another guru or swami or 
sage. They may think that being a Christian is merely some kind of religious experience or set of religious experiences when it's, in fact, a matter of accepting and proclaiming the objective truth about God and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Now, my method of doing apologetics is to give the best explanation for the Christian worldview through a cumulative case. So let's look at that. What do I mean by a best explanation? An explanation that is worth believing is one that is non-contradictory, factual, that is, coheres with science and history, and livable, that is, fits the human condition. So we could be talking about the best explanation of things that are very pedestrian. What's the best explanation for why my car didn't start? Well, the battery's dead. Why is the battery dead? Because I left the lights on last night. Or you could be talking about something very grand, such as what is the best explanation for the greatness and misery of the human condition? Something my favorite philosopher, Blaise Pascal, wrote much on. But the best explanation is one that doesn't contradict itself, doesn't contradict any known facts of history or science, and which can also be lived out without a kind of existential contradiction. So giving a cumulative case means to combine arguments that converge on the reality of the God of the Bible. I like to use the classroom. So let's say a prosecutor is trying to establish the guilt of John as a murderer. He will bring in forensic evidence, perhaps DNA evidence. He will bring in character witnesses. He might bring in an expert witness. So there is a cumulative case made for John's guilt. And John's guilt is not argued for on the basis of just one or two lines of evidence. So similarly, with the Christian worldview, we can use multiple lines of evidence from history, science, human experience, the nature of scripture itself, to show that Christianity is in fact objectively true. That is, it corresponds to reality, and it is the most important truth that we need to know. 
Apologetics can be divided into constructive and negative apologetics. Constructive apologetics is more building a case step by step. For the Christian view, negative apologetics means to logically critique non-Christian worldviews according to various criteria. So the three basic kinds of criteria that I use are internal consistency. So the basic statements of a worldview need to cohere. They need to get along with each other. And then second, a worldview needs to cohere with external reality, history, science, human experience. And also a worldview needs to be, as I said earlier, existentially livable, so to speak. So I don't mean that if you find a worldview attractive or it gives you meaning that makes it true. I mean that it is conducive to human flourishing because what it teaches is true and that helps you to agree with reality and to cooperate with the way the world is and therefore to thrive more than you would if you were cutting against the grain of reality all the time. So let's talk about three circles of evidence for Christianity. And while I said I use the cumulative case method, this was used by E.G. Carnell and the late Gordon Lewis, who was a good friend of mine. Another way of putting it is that it uses a classical method. The classical method means that you have a two-stage approach. If you are dealing with someone who doesn't believe in God at all, then you need to talk about arguments for the existence of God. If you're talking to someone who already believes in God, then you can make a case that Jesus is God and is Savior, and that one needs to come to him in faith for salvation. But the overall structure is, let's establish theism. There is one personal, infinite God, and we have multiple ways of arguing for that against atheism, pantheism, polytheism. And then, given the argument for theism, we ask, well, did that God, did Theo, reveal himself in any other way besides in the nature and existence of the universe? Did he reveal himself in history? So then you look at claims of scripture, and you could compare, for example, the truth claims of the Bible against that of the Quran or against Buddhist documents or Hindu documents and so on. So we want to go one step at a time, and what we find is that as we build a case, each step will eliminate certain worldview possibilities. So If we build a case for theism, which I will briefly in this podcast, then that is going to eliminate atheism and pantheism and polytheism. So if theism is the best explanation for the existence and nature of the universe, which it is, then the possibilities are deism, that is, God created and designed the world, but he has not done much of anything else. Or it could be Judaism without Christianity. God sent his prophets and made a covenant with Israel. Or it could be Islam, which claims to be the final revelation of God, who they call Allah, to humanity. So if we make a good case for theism from what is called natural theology, or give theistic proofs, then we will eliminate the other worldviews, but we will still have to deal with the theistic religions in a worldview apologetic context. All right, let's look at cosmology, biology, and history as three circles of evidence. And I am putting things into a nutshell. 
that in many ways don't belong in a nutshell. But if you crack open the nutshell and eat the nut and it tastes good, then you might want to eat more and more and come to an apologetic banquet. Cosmology, the universe is created. It is not eternal. So we have a lot of evidence. We'll just limit it to the scientific evidence and use some philosophical principles. There's a lot of scientific evidence from physics for an absolute beginning of the universe out of nothing. And we have multiple lines of evidence. There is, in fact, a cumulative case argument for the beginning of the universe a finite time ago that draws from Einstein's general theory of relativity, when corrected, predicts an expanding universe. And then in the 1920s, independent of each other, Belgian astronomer George Lemaitre and Russian mathematician Alexander Friedman corrected the error. This became known as the Friedman-Lemaitre model in 1929. American astronomer Edwin Hubble detected the redshift in distant galaxies. This indicated that what was further away was moving at a greater speed, more evidence of expansion. Then there was the detection of cosmic background radiation left over from the initial condition of the universe. Plus you have the consideration of thermodynamics, the second law of thermodynamics in, in particular, or entropy. So if all the available energy in the universe is running down, then if the universe is infinitely old, there should be no available energy now available. However, there is available energy now available. Therefore, the universe is not infinitely old. It had a beginning. So the upshot is that everything can be traced to an initial singularity. And Barrow and Tipler in their book, The Anthropic Cosmological Principle, which came out in 1986, say, at this singularity, space and time came into existence. Literally nothing existed before the singularity. So, if the universe originated in such a singularity, we would truly have a creation ex nihilo. Alternative theories to what is called the Big Bang Theory have failed, such as the steady state theory, the oscillating universe theory. These lack empirical evidence and contravene known laws of physics. There are other theories that are out there, and it can get fairly complicated. But suffice to say that the Big Bang is still the reigning theory, some version of the universe coming into being out of nothing a finite time ago. And in the last 40 years, the great proponent of this argument, using this evidence and other philosophical principles, has been William Lane Craig, of course. So this is how the argument works for God, given the deliverances of physics. Whatever begins to exist has a cause of its existence. Two, the universe began to exist. Therefore, A, the universe has a cause of its existence. Therefore, B, God, the creator, is the cause of the universe. Now, so much can be said about this, but let me look at the first principle. Whatever begins to exist has a cause of its existence. This is a metaphysical principle of causation. We know this to be true through rational intuition. The alternative is that things can pop into existence without causes, which means the universe would have a random element. It would destroy basic epistemological principles needed for everyday life, needed for even the investigation and development of science. It's not a rational notion to think that things can pop into existence without a cause. We have good evidence from the Big Bang cosmology that the universe began to exist. So, 
the universe has a cause. Now the question is, what kind of a cause? Well, the cause of the universe cannot be the universe. It has to be something outside of the universe, and it has to be something very different from the universe. So it has to be a being without space, without time, a tremendously powerful being, and a being that is transcendent. And it also makes sense that this being would be a personal being who made the decision to create, although I can't go into that argument at this point. So we have an argument from physics based on a lot of cumulative evidence that is stacked up over, oh, at least six decades, more than that, actually, if you go back to Einstein's theory, that the universe had a beginning. And in Robert Jastrow's great book, God and the Astronomers, he points out that a lot of the physicists who started to see this didn't like it because they were atheists and they realized that if the universe had a beginning, it had to have a cause for the beginning and that cause could not be the universe. So there had to be something outside of and superior to and cause of the universe. But the evidence added up. So at this point, it's more rational to believe that the universe was created by a personal being than to believe the universe has always existed, the evidence is against that, or to believe that the entire universe just popped into being out of nothing. You could call this the pop goes the universe theory. All right. So we have rational evidence for the beginning of the universe in a personal being. Now, two possible objections here. One, well, Dr. Grotheis, you must be a liberal. You know, we worry about you. This means you're not a six-day creationist because if you're appealing to Big Bang cosmology in the kind of vast ages of time, this means 13 to 15 billion years ago that the universe began that you don't really believe the Bible. So the Bible says that God created in six literal 24-hour periods. All right. I hold to biblical inerrancy. I hold to classical methods of biblical interpretation. And I also hold that Genesis does not have to be read to mean the universe was created in six 24-hour periods. And I give more detail about that in Christian apologetics. Just to console some of you folks that might be worrying, I am not a theistic evolutionist. I believe that God specially created the first man and woman. They have no lineage that goes back to any previous animals. But nevertheless, I believe in a very old universe. And nevertheless, that God worked over six periods of creation, but that this was not six, probably not six literal days. All right, so let's look at biology. So much here. But I will simply give you one example of something called the bacterial flagellum. Now, remember that in Darwinian biology, the idea is that life is not designed and that everything we find in biology can be explained according to antecedent, unguided material principles. And according to Darwin, everything developed slowly and incrementally over vast periods of time and nothing was pre-planned. All right, so this is what is called natural selection, as opposed to artificial selection. Artificial selection is when you breed different types of plants or different kinds of dogs to get certain outcomes. Darwin believed that nature selects without any design whatsoever. It's just a matter of which organisms survive 
as opposed to which organisms do not survive. So the ones that don't survive don't leave offspring. The ones that survive do. And so you have various characteristics in these organisms that come about through undirected causal pathways. All right. Is there a counterexample to this? There are many, but let me give you one. The bacterial flagellum. This is akin to an outboard motor that powers a bacterium around in the cell. And this has a universal joint, a propeller, a drive shaft, a rotor, a stator, bushings, all of which are needed for its function, none of which are expendable. So this is a biological motor attached to the back of a bacterium as seen through a high-powered microscope. This is not built by any human being. The bacterial flagellum has only been recently discovered to be what we call a molecular machine. So when you find a machine, you say, look at a boat, a car, a bicycle. You say, well, who built it? Because you have to have a variety of parts working in harmony to produce a particular function. Now, with the bacterial flagellum, you have about 40 different parts that are all necessary for its function. And this was famously defended in Michael Behe's book from 1996, I think is when it was first released, Darwin's Black Box. It's a 10th anniversary edition, 2006. So it has the marks of design, or what Bill Dembski calls irreducible complexity, or the mousetrap principle. The mousetrap has to have all these various parts in place in order to have the function of catching mice. All the integrated parts are needed for fruitful performance. It is very improbable that it was built up gradually through natural selection. That is the naturalistic, the undesigned explanation. And I'm not one for using videos that much for apologetics or philosophy. However, everyone needs to see the section on the bacterial flagellum in the Illustra Media video called The Case for a Creator which features Michael Behe and Scott Minich. Well, what is the best explanation for molecular machines? A designer, a mind behind the biology, not mindless nature, not eons of time of things coming into existence without reason and then simply evolving and somehow developing all these component parts. This slow, incremental, unguided change does not explain the bacterial flagellum, because if you take away any of the parts, it doesn't have the function that is needed for it to be an outboard motor. So please watch that. This argument has been around now for a long time, 25 years or longer. Mike Behe has followed all the criticisms of his argument over all these years. In fact, he's published a book about this, and I follow them pretty closely with Behe, and Behe has never been refuted. He is either ignored or people misrepresent what he believes and refute a straw man. But his essential argument for irreducible complexity has never been refuted. And I'm not even talking about the argument for intelligent design that we derive from the information in DNA and RNA, the very specified messages in DNA and RNA. I go into some detail about that in Christian apologetics. And the man that has developed that most thoroughly, is Stephen Meyer in his book, The Signature in the Cell. So we've got excellent evidence from cosmology and biology that there is a mind behind nature, that naturalism is a very poor explanation for what we find in nature. So we can enter the world of history, and I'm going to move very quickly here, 
if there is a mind that created the universe and is evident in biology, did this supernatural mind, who is also an agent, do anything else? Well, Christianity claims, of course, that God has revealed himself throughout history and has recorded those events in the Bible. So just consider the New Testament here. There are about 5,700 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, either complete or partial, that have very little variation among them. Now, these documents come at different times and different places, and one could go into the details of this. Dr. Blomberg goes into some of these details in his chapter in my book about Jesus of Nazareth. But suffice to say that the New Testament is better attested in terms of the transmission of the documents than any other piece of ancient literature. Now you want to say, okay, well, if they have been transmitted with great integrity, what about the original writings? They could be very well-preserved frauds. Well, they could, but they're not, because the original writers were either eyewitnesses of Jesus or those who consulted the eyewitnesses. So you have John, who wrote the Gospel of John, who was a disciple of Jesus. Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, was a disciple of Jesus. You have Luke, who was a great historian. And when you look at Luke 1, 1 through 4, you see how diligent he was in researching historical documents. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were probably written before 70 A.D., certainly the entire New Testament before 100 A.D., And we can also corroborate many of the biblical claims about Jesus and the early church from extra-biblical writers, such as the Jewish writer Josephus and other writers like Tacitus, Thallus, Suetonius, and others. All right? So if someone comes to the New Testament and says, well, you can't trust it because it's been translated so many times, you'd say, well, the Greek scholars that translate the New Testament are dealing with a great wealth of documents, and there's very little disagreement as to what the translations should be. And moreover, when we consider those who wrote the New Testament, they're not writing hundreds of years later, they're not speculating madly the way the Gnostics did 150, 200, 250 years after Jesus. They are recording the facts and telling you the meaning of what happened. Now, another objection and of course I'm going over these quickly, although we're at 36 minutes already, is, well, these documents contain miracle claims. Jesus walks on water. He rises from the dead. He raises people from the dead. You can't believe historical documents that have miracle claims in them. All right. Well, if we have good evidence that there is a supernatural mind and an agent behind the universe who created it out of nothing and shows his intelligence in life, in the bacterial flagellum, and in the informational nature of DNA and RNA, and so on, so much more, then that kind of being could work a miracle, if that being decided to do so. So now we look at the historical evidence. And while there are a lot of miracle claims made throughout history, and made in different religions, the miracle claims recorded in the Gospels and in the Book of Acts are far better attested than any other miracle claims. You have multiple sources that are attesting to most of them. They are ancient sources. They have been well-preserved. They read as history. They don't read as fanciful tales. 
as you would the adventures of Krishna in Hinduism, and so on. So, of course, the person who dominates the New Testament, and really the whole Bible, is Jesus Christ. And we have to ask, who was Jesus Christ? This is really the greatest story ever staged or ever written. It was produced and acted out by God himself. And what I want to read here is a quote from the Christian apologist and novelist and translator Dorothy Sayers, who said, The dogma is the drama. For whatever reason God chose to make man, as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. Dorothy Sayers, The Dogma is the Drama, which is contained in the collection The Whimsical Christian. Jesus makes tremendous claims. He claims that he has the authority to forgive sins. We see that in Mark 2, 1 through 14. He says that he came to seek and to save the lost. We see that in Luke 19.10. He makes the claim that he is Lord of the Sabbath in Mark 2.15-28. He says that he is one with the Father, John 10.30-31. So he's making these claims that no mere human could make. Only God has the authority to forgive sins according to the Jewish mind and according to anyone's right mind. He claims that authority. Now, he says he's Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus was many times involved in disputes about the Sabbath, and this is how he clinches the argument. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, who invented the Sabbath? Wasn't Moses or David, Abraham, was God. So Jesus is making an indirect claim to be God. When he says that he's one with the Father, he's taken to be claiming that he is divine. All right. Or think of John 8, 58, where Jesus is in a dispute with some religious figures. And this is how he clinches the argument. Before Abraham was, I am. And they're profoundly bothered by this. They pick up stones to stone him. Why? Well, a mere man is claiming to be God. Before Abraham was, I am is not bad grammar. It's good theology. Because God said in Exodus three fourteen when he was speaking to Moses, He says, tell them, I am who I am sends you. So Jesus says, before Abraham even existed, I am, was using the divine name. Now, very quickly, if that's possible for an old apologist like me, Jesus made these claims. They were not attributed to him later. He made these claims and other claims that either directly or indirectly claim that he is divine. Now, he's either right or wrong in making those claims. If he's right, then he, in fact, is the Son of Man, the Son of God, the divine Savior of the world, and we should worship and serve him. If he is wrong, then we have two options. He was either mentally deluded or he was a huckster. Now, there's no evidence that he was mentally deluded, that he was insane in any sense. His teaching was too wise. His interaction with people was too insightful. Now, there was a time when 
his family thought he was beside himself, or maybe he was losing his mind, but that was early on in the ministry, and that was not their settled conviction about Jesus. And if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you'll see that the man depicted is not a man who is insane in any way. So the idea that he was a mental failure, deluded, doesn't hold up. What about the second option, a moral failure, that he was a huckster? Well, I can't think of a less winning strategy in Second Temple Judaism in ancient Israel than to start a religion based on the idea that you are God, because this is a radically monotheistic culture. The idea of claiming to be God is going to get you into trouble quickly. In fact, you might even be crucified, which is what happens. So, this is an argument by elimination. You might remember it from C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity and also some other sources. It boils down to a dichotomy, God or a bad man. Well, he was not a bad man. He was not a moral failure. He was not a mental failure. So he was who he said he was. And moreover, he was credentialed by his resurrection. He claimed that he would atone for the sins of the world, that he was the savior, that people could not save themselves. He had to go and be crucified, and he would rise again from the dead. And if we use what's called a minimal facts approach from history, we know what his burial place was. There's good evidence for an empty tomb, good evidence for many appearances, or what seemed to be appearances to his disciples, and that these appearances changed the life of his disciples. So given those facts that most critical historians will accept about early Christianity, even if they're not Christians, he was crucified and buried in a known place that the tomb was found to be empty, that there are many accounts of him appearing after his death, and that these seeming appearances changed the life of his disciples such that they became more bold and courageous. The best explanation for all of this is a supernatural one. That is, that Jesus did rise again from the dead. This was not a story written hundreds of years later in the murky recesses of mythopoeic history or mythopoeic literature. It happened in plain view. So the resurrection is the best explanation of the facts that even most secular ancient historians who study this claim. And again, I have the argument in much more detail in Christian apologetics. Of course, William Lane Craig has given this argument. Gary Habermas has given this argument. Mike Lacone has given this argument. You don't even have to use this argument. You can use a much simpler argument, which is simply the New Testament is very well documented historically. It stands the test of transmission. It stands the test of the credibility of the original authors. The Gospels report Jesus rose from the dead. The New Testament makes no sense if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Therefore, it makes sense to believe that after his atoning death for our sins, Jesus rose from the dead. Moreover, as I start to conclude, the achievements of Jesus best answers the human condition. That is, we need a clear conscience. We need forgiveness but we need hope as well. So I love this quote from Blaise Pascal. Jesus is the God whom we can approach without pride and before whom we can humble ourselves without despair. We should realize that Christ is the divine Messiah. He claimed to forgive sin. He did provide the atoning sacrifice for sin on the cross. He took the punishment that we deserve. He paid a penalty we cannot pay. 
He freed us from the powers of darkness. But we have to do something with Jesus. It's not enough to say, these are interesting arguments. I believe Jesus lived, that he lived in a theistic world, because science shows that theism better explains the world than atheism or pantheism or polytheism. Well, isn't that interesting? Now I'll just go back to my life the way it was. No, you need to respond to Jesus. I remember when I was seriously considering Jesus back in 1976 when I was reading the Gospels, talking to Christian friends at that time, that I realized that I was at a fork in the road. And the Jesus fork said, come to me, repent of your sins, follow me, confess me as Lord. Everything depends on it. And I couldn't see what the other fork was, but I knew the other fork was wrong. So the point of apologetics is not to show everyone else how smart you are. It's good to be smart, well-informed, but stay humble about it because all of your gifts are from God anyway. The point is to defend and commend the Christian message and to bring people to the cross of Christ that they may be redeemed and to do so as soon as possible. But as I said earlier, no sooner. Because in order to understand the gospel, we have to understand something about the nature of God, that God is holy and just. He is infinitely holy and infinitely just. So we are not. We are sinful. We have violated our own conscience. We've broken our own standards, let alone God's perfect standards. So we need to be forgiven. We need to have our sins atoned for. And that can only be done through Christ. And he has shown his unique credentials. He has demonstrated his achievements through his life, his miracles, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension. So the upshot is we need to get right with God through Jesus Christ. And let's make that known to the world. So we've had a longer than usual podcast today, simply because was trying to summarize the basic apologetic in a nutshell. The nutshell got bigger than I thought it would, but we tried to make a case that there's evidence from science for the existence of God. There's evidence from history, from scripture, from Jesus, that God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ for our redemption. Next time, we'll talk about a Christian view of ethics, deriving ethics from scripture. And then we will, after that, talk about a biblical view of culture. So as an action step for today or a call to action, would encourage you to consider reading more about apologetics or watching that tremendous video. You can find it on YouTube called The Case for a Creator. My book, Christian Apologetics, has about 250 pages on the scientific evidence and the historical, rather the scientific and philosophical arguments for theism. And then of course it's got a lot in there too about the reliability of scripture and the identity of Jesus. So that would be another action step would be to read that in my book or read work done by people I've mentioned. I'll have this in the show notes. People like William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland, Gary Habermas, Lee Strobel's works. I'll have links to all of that. But remember, the point of apologetics is twofold. To remove obstacles for people becoming Christians, to take get those out of the way, to give a strong case for theism, a strong case for Jesus as Lord, and to bring people who are not Christians into the fold. And secondly, to strengthen, to encourage, to build up believers who believe but their faith is weak. 
And you don't help someone's weak faith by just telling them to have more faith. The way you do it is by giving them sound reason and evidence and arguments. So thank you for joining me in the Philosophy Bunker for Truth Tribe. We will see you next time. Truth Tribe is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. Our world can feel chaotic and uncertain, but we don't have to live enslaved to fear. Christ has promised me and you his peace, and throughout Scripture has provided powerful tools and practical steps to help us experience greater freedom. I'm Jennifer Slattery, lead host of the Faith Over Fear podcast, inviting you to join me and my team as together we learn how to starve our fears and feed our faith. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com or wherever you access podcast content.